You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. We're in a series called Your Bible and How to Use It. May God bless you as you listen. Well, I don't know if you ever really kind of pay attention to the bulletin and the sermon titles in there, but I love picking good sermon titles. And and I like how obvious today's message title is. The Bible is full of words. Think about that. The Bible is full of words. Kind of like, duh, right? Yeah, of course it is. It's a book, right? But here's some fun facts for you. The New International Version, the NIV, has 727,969 words in it. The King James Version, KJV, has 783,137 words in it. The English Standard, or the ESV, has 757,439 words. The New King James Version, 770,430. The New American Standard Bible, the NASB, has 782,815 words in it. If you want to know what translation you're using, you just go to the publisher's page. It's the first couple of pages in, and you should be able to find it. It looks a little bit like this. There's the title page on the inside, and on the reverse side of that is always the publisher's notifications, and it tells you the date and also the the version that you're reading for sure. Okay? Now, this is from the NIV. This is what I've been reading for the last 39 years, and... um, It's the only Bible that I've really become familiar with, and I love it. The one of the first things that you'll notice is that whatever version you use, and there's lots of great translations, your Bible is full of words. And so why all the different word counts uh, in and in between different translations? Well, let me show you. In order to do that, we need to go to uh, Luke chapter 19 this morning. Luke chapter 19, verse 41 You'll notice here it reads, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. That's 12 words. The King James says, and when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. That's 14 words. ESV 13, uh, New Living Translation 17, and the original Greek in which it was written, there's only nine. So why, all the English, why do all the English translations have double digits in their word counts? Well, if you try to translate any foreign language, uh, any language really, straight into English, there's going to be a difference in word counts, isn't there? Because sometimes it takes two to four words in English to translate into another language and vice versa. For instance, if you look at the Greek from that verse, right, you got kai, who's the word and, that's one word, hos, that's one word, that's the word as, but if you go to engesen, that is he drew near, that's three words. The next word has, is, makes up for two English words, one word, one word, two words, one word, one word. It would be the same as if you were to try to translate something from German into English. So whatever Bible you open to read, please appreciate that you're reading an English translation of an original language, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, with a splattering of Aramaic in there in points as well. 
So I think it, it shows us that really we should be grateful, thankful that we have come to the place in the history of the church and the world really where we have whole translation committees of solid Hebrew and Greek scholars, foreign language scholars, women and men who know these ancient languages and are able to do the work of translating this into amazing book from a language that really is dead as a usable language into what is more easily read for us today. Now, you might wonder, why are there so many translations? And there are hundreds of them, English translations. The first English translation was published in in the 1300s. That's the Wycliffe Bible. The printing press, the Gutenberg Bible, was the first Bible printed off of it. It was from 1455, English Bible. Most of the better English translations started getting published, though, not until 1970s. And the reason they're better is simply because they were able to utilize better manuscripts than the older English translations were, especially since the release of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. It took a long time to release them to the public and the translation committees. All the newer English Bible translations were essentially developed to help modernize and clean up the Bible even more than the ones that came before them. So really, when it comes to translations, it really is a matter of words, but here's something that you need to understand and keep in mind as you read your Bibles. Words mean nothing by themselves. Do you hear me on that? Words mean nothing by themselves. Let me give you an example. We all know what the word run means, right? R-U-N. Let me use it in a sentence. I had a run the other day. Now, Just reading that with no other context, you don't know if I meant run as a verb, a noun, or an adjective. Without any context, you don't know what I really meant by it. I could have meant that I moved my legs at a pace faster than walking. That's called running, in case some of you are unfamiliar with that. (laughs) Or I could have meant I had a run in my stockings, while my wife would have, not me. There was a day men wore stockings a long time ago. Now, you don't know if I meant I had a run in baseball, advancing from first base, second base, third base, and sliding into home and safe. You don't know if I meant that I had a burger run the other day to McDonald's. I would have gone to Fat Burger, not McDonald's, but that's beside the point. And I could have also meant that I had a run in the paint when I finished painting my living room. I looked at the dictionary.com online, and there are 148 different uses of the word run. So a word by itself, written down, means nothing by itself. Unless, of course, you're able to determine the context. Friends, in responsible Bible study, context is king. Can you say that with me? Context is king. So what is context, and how do you discover the context of a word or a passage of the Bible that you've been reading? Well, really, you have to ask a lot of questions. With our run sentence, I'd probably ask questions like, well, what were you doing the other day that you had a run? Is the word run a noun or a verb or an adjective in the way you're using it? And then you might have to ask some surrounding questions like, what do you mean by the other day? Do you mean yesterday or someday last week or do you even mean last month sometime? Can you imagine we're reading an ancient book 
written in a different language, translating into English, might be challenging in just about every part of it to, to come to an understanding of what that word means all by itself without any context, just simply by reading the word. So context is king. So how do you find the context of a word or phrase in the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked. There's a few rules. Number one, rule number one, every Bible passage has multiple contexts. Every Bible passage has multiple contexts. There is never just one context when interpreting the Bible. For instance, let's go back to the verse that we used earlier in Luke chapter 19, verse 41. It says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, just pulling that out of thin air, you don't know who it's talking about, but we know who's talking about. It's talking about Jesus. Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, and he wept over it. Now, many people think that they're reading, when they're reading their Bibles, to find the context just simply means reading the couple of verses before and the couple of verses after, and that provides you with the context. Well, you do need to do that. That does help provide you the context, but really, that's only the first step. That's not nearly enough to get to the, know the context of what you're reading. Let's go to the fuller context then. Let's read the few verses before and after. Luke chapter 19, let's read, start reading at verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come, verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not... Oh, could you go back one? Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now that's helpful, isn't it? The first few verses before and the the few following. That really does help broaden the context. So what do we notice? Well, starting out in verse 37, it starts out by saying, they came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. Any idea where that is? That's why you need a good Bible with good Bible maps at the back because there is a historical slash geographical context to this part of the passage, to this part of the Bible. So you'll see a map on the wall here. This is the scene. This is coming from Bethphage. Let me see if I can get my... My pointer to point here. See if you can see it here. So here's the Mount of Olives. And he's moving down this path towards a gate here. This is the scene coming from Bethphage and Bethany. We know that because verse 29 tells us that. And Jesus and his disciples are getting closer to Jerusalem. He's riding the colt of a donkey down one of the paths of the Mount of Olives, and he's moving between that and the Kidron Valley. And we learn that from verse 35. So he's in that area there that I showed you. And as he's going, Jesus is looking up at the city. And from there, 
he'd been able to see the eastern gate, and he would have been entering that very soon. Now, you won't get this from reading verse 41 or even from the rest of the chapter, but again, looking at a map, the old city of Jerusalem is surrounded by a massive wall that included eight major gates. Oh, keep going, keep there. You can see them all around the city there. And there's eight gates surrounding there. There's more nowadays, but there was only eight then. Verse 41 says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, if you do a word search on the word wept or weeping in a good concordance, or maybe your study Bible has a cross-reference in the margins, you might see a redirect to 2 Samuel chapter 15. See, this route holds some historic messianic context as well as geographical context for the Bible's narrative here. This, is, this was the route that David took, King David, when he was leaving Jerusalem after being rejected by Israel and being driven out into exile by his own son Absalom. To do that, you have to go to 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, where it says, and this is sort of an antithesis of the, of the triumphal entry. It's a sort of an untriumphal exit. The whole countryside wept aloud. Here's the weeping again. And all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley, and all the people moved on toward the wilderness. If you bump down to verse 30, verse 31, David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. And when he reached the Mount of Olives, 2 Samuel 15 tells us that his family were given donkeys to ride. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you're a bit of a prophecy student, you might know that there's some prophetic, future prophetic significance to this route as well. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 to 4, uh, your cross-references and your, your, uh, in your Bibles will lead you here. It says, when the man brought me to the gate facing east, this is Ezekiel in a prophecy, in a vision, and I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. And the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And like the visions I had seen by the Kebar River and fell down face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Trouble is, the eastern gate is all walled up today. In AD 1541, uh, Suleiman the, the Magnificent, a sultan of the Ottoman Empire, uh, had that eastern gate all sealed up because they were worried about Israel's future Messiah entering that city one day. This is a massive double-gate structure. Some sections date back to the time of Nehemiah. Some of, some of our Bible studies are reading through Nehemiah and Esther right now. In Nehemiah in the 5th century B.C. So this is 400 years before Jesus was ever walking this route, going through this gate. And some sections of this wall, part of the wall are, are from the time of King Herod, obviously. According to Jewish tradition, the gate had been called the Shishan Gate because Nehemiah was at the Persian uh, summer palace in Shishan when he heard about the situation in Jerusalem. That's from Nehemiah 1. In the gate's entrance, there was embossed a, a sculpture. I don't think it's there now, but there was a sculpture there of the Persian summer palace that Nehemiah was at. 
rabbis, Jewish teachers, suggest that the sculpture was there to remind Israel, coming in and out of the city, that they're where they had come from. And it was, it was sort of there to commemorate the decree of the Persian king Cyrus in 538 BC to allow the Jewish people to return to their land and rebuild their temple, Ezra chapter 1. And that ended the 70 years of captivity. That's not information you're likely going to get from a small portion of Scripture just reading Luke 19 and following. That's why it's important to have a good one-volume Bible commentary to get to know the historical data, the historical context of what you're reading. Interestingly, though, isn't it, that this is the footpath, this one little footpath where so much history has already otherwise been seen, but we would have overlooked it. This, just this idea of a little lone footpath by a simple reading of the words of the passage. But a simple word search and some commentary reading, looking at a map, begins to uncover loads of historical and prophetic uh, context to help explain the, re- the greater context of the passage. Now, I wish I could get into all of this passage because it really is an awesome passage, but this little bit of study reinforces rule number one, Every biblical passage has multiple contexts. And we've seen there's historical, geographical, messianic contexts already, but there's also the author's context. Again, this is why it's important to have a good modern English study Bible because they have the book introduction at the beginning of each book of the Bible. It tells you all kinds of data that you wouldn't otherwise get. And it tells you a lot about the author as well. So to understand the fuller context of the Gospel of Luke, or of Luke chapter 19, it would be important to read the entire Gospel of Luke, as well as the, the important first reading there at the beginning of the chapter. Now each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, record the triumphal entry of Jesus also, but not like, not like uh, Luke does. Each author adds certain context details to the account that the others don't. And that comes from their own personal experience with the event and with Jesus. So to get to the fuller context of Luke 19, it would be important for you to read the other Gospels as well in that account. Now, there's also a literary genre context. Whenever you read a portion of Scripture, you should be asking yourself, what type of literature is this that I'm reading? Is it historical narrative? Is it poetry or prose? Is it a song? Is it prophecy? If it's prophecy, is it future-telling or is it apocryphal? There are many literary genres the authors employ all throughout their books, and it's not always the same. Did you know that the first 11 chapters of Genesis is a form of chiastic prose? A chiasmus or chiastic writing is a literary technique uh, in, in, in narrative prose to bring two or more ideas together and then near the end circle back to reemphasize one specific point. Some serious Bible readers not only need to look at uh, serious Bible readers not only need to look at the, the book of what it says, but to also understand the genre or the, the literary context of, the, of that part of the book that they're reading. How is it arranged literarily? This is especially important when you're trying to, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 especially, trying to figure out the nature of the days of creation. The emphasis isn't actually on the days. I know we kind of read them like that, but the actual emphasis is on the creative supremacy of God. 
But we make such a big deal of the first that we miss the last. Genesis 2.4 says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Genesis 1 and 2 emphasizes that Elohim alone is the creator and Lord God of all things. That's the point. So rule number one, every biblical passage has multiple contexts. So not only is there the context of the paragraph before and after what you're reading, the whole book has a context. There's historical, geographical, prophetic, and cultural background contexts. And there's the author's context. There's literary genre or the type of literature context. There's a religious context. And all of that provides a context to what you're reading. And that's going to take work on our part, your part, to get all that data down so that you can understand that text more fully. There's a second rule. Rule number two, pay attention to text notes and cross-references. What are these? Again, another reason to invest in a good modern English study Bible. When shopping for a Bible, here's what to look for. I mean, pastor, I got to buy another Bible? Well, not necessarily. Not if your Bible already has text notes or some Bibles call them end notes and cross-reference systems and a concordance built into it like this one does. Uh, Kennedy's Parable Book sells NIV, ESV study Bibles, similar study Bibles to around $120. And you think, wow, that's a lot of money. And I know that's a lot of money. But the thing is, let me, let me put it this way. I've lived in the house that I'm living in now for 20 years. When we first moved in, the guy before us did every kind of update to the house possible. When we moved in, we had to do nothing. It was awesome. But 10 years in, things start to break down. I need to start making changes. I need to start renovating a few things to bring the house up to date. Now, here's something about house renos uh, that, that I think we all probably know and every guy loves. Guys, what do, you do when you, what do you need when you do house renovations? You need tools. That's right. And if you don't have the tools, well, guess what? Oh, dear, um, it looks like I'm going to have to go to Home Depot. i got to buy a tool. You know, and you're celebrating that, but there's a lot of work ahead. But you need the right tools to be able to do that. Well, brothers and sisters, your spiritual house needs constant renovations too. We need updates. We need to make changes. And that means that we need the right tools to make it happen. And your Bible is the best tool you will ever invest in. So $120, if you can afford it, is the best investment you will ever make. Keep your eyes open at garage sales and flea markets and... Second-hand stores, you might find a study Bible there that you can afford. But can I make a recommendation? A little side note here. Stay away from the flowery extras like the women's or men's study Bibles or life application Bibles or adventure Bibles or journaling or coloring Bibles. Yes, there's Bibles with coloring pages in them. Stay away from celebrity pastor Bibles, like I mentioned last week. Publishers have to add all that flowery stuff because they need to attract you to buy a new Bible. That's really what it comes down to. Because if you buy a good Bible to begin with, you're not going to need another new Bible for another 10 years at least. Maybe never. And so for the last 10 decades, uh, for the last decades, they want to sell Bibles. And that's why you see all, a plethora of different Bibles out there on the shelf and even among study Bibles. 
So they're nice to have. I have dozens of those Bibles on my shelf as well. They're good as an aside, but, and I have hundreds of Bibles on my Bible software. So just stay away from the unnecessary fluff and buy a simple English study Bible. So here's what to look for in that Bible. A cross-reference system. A cross-reference system. At its simplest, a cross-reference system is a raised marker in the text pointing, to the, re- pointing the reader to related context, content elsewhere in your Bible. They point you to other passages containing related words and content and themes. So if you have a bunch of numbers in the column of your Bible like this, that is called a cross-reference uh, system. And it's brilliant. It will advance your study uh, of the Bible significantly. Soon you'll notice passages, all kinds of passages, popping from popping you in and out of different books of the Bible. For instance, as we read Luke chapter 2, verses 29 to 31, verse 30 reads, For my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, if you look up the references in the cross-reference column, you'll see that it points you to other content, words, or themes elsewhere in the Bible. You'll see if that verse is quoted other places. In this case, it it goes to uh, Isaiah 40, verse 5, Isaiah 52, verse 10, and Luke chapter 3, verse 6. Those are the ones that are uh, referenced. And if you have trouble finding those books in your Bible, again, just go to the front of your Bible. There's a... a, um, Uh, table of contents there. So you can find whatever book you're looking for simply and easily. So, if you don't know how to use a cross-reference system in your Bible, um, at the front of your Bible, it tells you how to do it. You could also go on YouTube. There's all kinds of tutorials for the exact Bible that you have showing you how to use those cross-references. Secondly, there's text notes. Text notes or end notes, as others call them. And they're usually at the last paragraph of the page. And these are really helpful as well because when they have a raised bold lettering in them that follows a word, a specific word, that directs you to the text note underneath the paragraph. And they examine things like alternate translations, meanings of specific Hebrew or Greek terms, Old Testament quotations, various manuscript differences or changes. They're brilliant too. The other thing you need is a concordance. A lot of you have a concordance in your Bibles, and that's a good thing, but it's in every study Bible. The concordance will always be at the back of your Bible. It's the very last section, other than the maps, and it helps you if you want to find a particular word in the Bible. It's not exhaustive. Here's a print version. Oh, I don't have the print version. I was going to put it up on the screen. But I have an exhaustive concordance that's about like this, and it's about this thick of all the words in the Bible. But otherwise, just get a good Bible app. Get Bible, the Bible app, on your whatever device you're using, and you'll be able to look up any word or phrase that you want in any translation. So... What do you got to do to get to the context of this and to use these things? Read the passage. Focus only on the text at hand. Read and reread the passage. As you read, write any observations you find in a notebook or write in the margins of your Bible. I give you freedom to write in your Bibles. It's really good because then the next time you're reading that passage, you go, oh, I made a note in my journal about that on page. And then you're able to go and find it or into other parts of your Bible. So look up the cross-references and the text notes and do all of that before you consult even the commentary in your study Bible or your one-volume commentary or any other commentary. Flip first through the cross-references. 
get the context for yourself. You can study your own Bible. You don't have to have commentators whispering in your ears what they think it means. You can come to an understanding of what you think it means very simply. Rule number three. Everything in the Bible isn't about the end times. Everything in the Bible isn't about the end times. One of the reasons some people get serious about Bible study is to figure out their end times timeline. Trouble is, sometimes when you've done it long enough and you get a little bored, you stop studying your Bible. It's It's the hook that draws you in, but it maybe doesn't stay with you very long. It's a fun topic, but what's troubling is, is when the end times... When the end times is the point of your Bible study, you're going to get bored with other parts of your Bible that aren't about the end times, causing you to neglect very important topics and passages within your Bibles, even in obscure books. Besides all that, most people, when studying the end times, and not just studying the the Bible text, they're studying it from another book of their favorite end times author. And I encourage you to not do that. That can actually be dangerous. It leads you down a path of listening to only one position on the end times. For instance, the passage from Luke that we re-read earlier as as we were reading, I bet some of you are already connecting an an end times timeline timeline in your head. Look at Luke chapter 19. Let's go there again. Verse 37 to 45. Let's read it again, just so we can get the good context of it here. When he came near the place where the roads came down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because they did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. For sure, this Bible passage here has some future telling in it. Verse 40 says, I tell you, that's Jesus. He says, if they, that is his disciples, keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus isn't saying that he will make literal stones praise him. He's future telling the destruction of Jerusalem, the city of God, and its temple in A.D. 70. This is about A.D. 33 in Jesus' experience. So he's future-telling a very short distance into the future. But the point that we should get caught up with isn't the prophecy so much. The point is actually found in verse 44, the second part. It says, he says, they will not leave one stone on another because, why? You did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You did not recognize me, he says. Jesus is describing the consequences of Israel's failure to recognize him as their Messiah. That's the point of the passage in Luke. But the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and John, recording the parallel passages of the triumphal entry in their gospels, make a different point without telling about the prophecy in AD 70. So 
Learn to shut off that end times pre-programming that you have in your head when you're studying your Bible. It's not always about the end times so that you can enjoy the rest of your Bible all the time. Rule number four, everything in the Bible isn't about Jesus. Don't worry, I'm not going to get struck by lightning. Oh, maybe I have a heart attack. No. Everything in the Bible isn't about Jesus. And I, and I know we like to romanticize this notion. Maybe you've even read it by an author somewhere, but it simply doesn't work. That's sort of fine in the Gospels to kind of see Jesus everywhere, obviously, but it doesn't help us to get the proper context of a passage in our Bible study if we have to try to figure out how to work Jesus into it. See, when we try to filter everything we read in the Bible through the lens of Jesus, we have to manipulate the text by our own cleverness until somehow Jesus becomes the point. Don't get me wrong, there's tons of stuff in the Bible about Jesus in both the Old and the New Testament. Jesus himself showed us uh, as he's on another path, uh, walking after his resurrection with a couple of his disciples, and he's, he's going and he's tracing from the Old Testament to his current situation, because remember, they didn't have a New Testament at that point. But all throughout the Old Testament, he's, he's tracing his arrival and his work of salvation on the cross and his resurrection. And Jesus could do that just with his Old Testament. Also, trying to figure out how to make Jesus the point of every passage can lead to minimizing or ignoring passages that are hard to find a direct connection to Jesus from. For instance, when was the last time you read the book of Leviticus or Numbers or Proverbs? It's hard to see Jesus in those pages. For sure, the lead, the entire story of the Bible, the whole arc of Scripture does ultimately lead us to Jesus. But he isn't the point of every passage. The Bible is full of words, and context is king. And when you get that, the Bible will come alive to you, every part of it. So, before you open your Bible, you must open your heart and mind to the eternal, all-knowing, supernatural God who engineered it. Then you have to concentrate on not just reading the words on the page, but discovering the context of what you're reading. And context is what? King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word today. Thank you that your word is more than just words on a page. This is an ancient book. And Lord, we are so grateful that in your sovereignty, you orchestrated the events of human history, of politics, of world movements, you orchestrated it so that when there were certain groups trying to not only outlaw but destroy every Bible in their city and country, Lord, this Bible has prevailed. It exists today because you want us to know you by it. You want to speak to us. And though this Bible wasn't written to us, it certainly was written for us. And Lord, today as we are in your word, we pray that helping us, Lord, through understanding some of the mechanics of studying our Bible this Bible will become even more rich to us. We thank you for it, Lord. And we thank you for the women and men who, in translation committees throughout the last number of decades, have worked hard to take what was old and from another language that none of us can read and know to bringing it about in a text that we can enjoy casually and studiously. Lord, we bless you for this wonderful gift, and we give you praise, honor, 
and glory. Speak to us still, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.